scene one, take ten, marker. From the studio of WHUP LP Hillsboro, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour, together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, still glam rock after all these years, Luke Spiller of the Struts will be with us. Murmur is a modern school of film show. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Glad to have you with us. This is Robert Malazzo for the next hour, looking at culture and craft, how they mix effectively or not. We have a website, uh, murmurradio.com. We have an email, murmurradio at gmail.com. Send us a line, send us a note, send us a question. We will read it on the air. We would love to hear from you. We're also on the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram at MSF Murmur, and of course, modernschoolfilm.com. Send us a note. Love to hear from you. Welcome back. One of uh, two of my favorite topics uh, to cover with students, one is sort of more for myself and one is more external for my students. Uh, they're, they're primarily interested in the first for me, really, for my brain, my crude brain, is this idea of uh, when art schools uh, and it's something we covered with Mark Mothersbaugh uh, before on Murmur, when art schools were sort of a, a haven for uh, art and uh, sort of a gateway drug for musicians. A lot of um, musicians that you know and love were actually art school students. Uh, we talked about Mark. Uh, the Talking Heads met at RISD, a Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, the cliche cliche is probably Pink Floyd. We'll talk about them a little bit more in a second. But also, there's um, my fa- I think my favorite is Nick Cave because Nick said that he became a musician because he flunked out of art school. Uh, <laughs> thank goodness. Uh, there's a there's a subgroup of uh, art school students that led to the genre, the wave we're going to talk about today. And, and the, the, the wave, or the, the artists in question, David Bowie, you may have heard a few of these, David Bowie, Brian Ferry, Freddie Mercury, uh, they were all art school students. Actually, Brian Ferry's art professor, a guy named Richard Hamilton, I don't know if that guy rings a bell, but the, the album cover he designed, surely will, he designed the White Album for the Beatles. Uh, they were all, those guys were all art school students. 
Uh, and it led in a weird way, probably in an incidental way, this idea artistic traditions, one leading to the other, which is a lot of what we cover here on Murmur. Uh, the, the sort of the, those guys were bridging the gap from art into music and visuals and but not only that but performance and 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 uh, mise-en-scene and costume and makeup and and really amounts to the topic we're going to talk about today which is glam rock glam rock was a early 70s kind of out of the 60s early 70s invention and if you want to look at it on two kind of layers of embryo where the embryos were one was the end of the kind of mod rocker collisions uh, in Brighton and Brixton. Um, and out of that came, it's funny, you know, the, the UK was still going through a depression. There were still a lot of strikes. There were trash strikes and, and there was a lot of kind of cultural changing. There was a sort of undercurrent and almost a subversive flow of young artists being influenced by image and visual design. And those were the glam rockers uh some of there's so many great names associated with the glam rocks we talked about Bowie Brian Ferry Roxy Music um Gary Glitter actually Glitter Rock is is a cousin of glam rock and it was reserved uniquely for Gary Glitter Glitter Rock uh a group called Sweet uh a group called Slade which you know so a lot of um a lot of really smart uh, artists were, were were cross fertilizing their <laughs> their traditions, and it led to this sort of glam rock. And in the states as well, a little later, uh, Alice Cooper, New York Dolls, Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, and even later, later, I think of Prince as sort of a glam rocker, Def Leppard, uh, Poison, uh, Bon Jovi. Well, Bon Jovi, not so much. How did they sneak in there? Um, Oasis, maybe. Uh, It was sort of this romanticism in music and image, and it connects to another one of my favorite topics uh, to discuss with my students, because I'm always asked, what is the function of music videos? Well, glam rock came out of television in a way. Uh, One of the earliest glam rockers who we're going to talk about today is Mark Bolin. Mark Bolin was the front man for T-Rex. And Bolin is an interesting guy. He's sort of a god of glam rockery and uh, a sort of artistic hero for today's guest, Luke Spiller. Um, he, he christened glam rock in a way. Uh, some people see his performance on Top of the Pops in 1971 as the birth of glam rock. And what I like about that is it's TV that that really... Uh, propped up glam rock because of shows like Top of the Pops where a lot of the glam rockers and young people would say, oh man, look at that. Uh, So before the ubiquity of music videos, there were TV, this sort of subversive imagery of TV. And it's it's kind of comforting to know that TV could house subversive images. So Mark's performance on Top of the Pops was an important watershed and um, a lot of artists, the next next wave or some future waves of artists were being influenced by Mark, including, I know Johnny Marr talks about Bolin because Mark Bolin was such an expert guitarist. Uh, Marr was, in, Bolin was one of Marr's early influences, Adamant, 
Duran Duran, Guns N' Roses, all have name-checked uh, and song-checked uh, Mark and T-Rex. So I think this idea of imagery and TV and music video, you know, maybe that has always been the function. You know, today's guests to expose people to the unexposed. <laughs> today's guest uh, in 2008 saw a video from the darkness, uh, I believe in a thing called love, and that really started him on this sort of glam rock journey, even though his the other DNA of his glam rock journey started with Michael Jackson's Off the Wall. We'll talk about that. But I love this idea of Mark Bolin and T-Rex. Mark actually had a TV show called Mark, creatively enough, and a lot of the glam rockers were guests. Bowie, Roger Taylor of Queen, The Jam, uh, Generation X, which actually was fronted by a very young and beautiful Billy Idol. So this idea of images and particularly television images, and we can put that side by side with um, music videos and art schools and all these swirling Petri dishes. Maybe that's the function of music videos now. Maybe they can um, allow us to see visual design in a way that no other medium can. Film hasn't always done the best job with this. You're talking about Rocky Horror, Ziggy Stardust, uh, and also um, Phantom of the Paradise, 1974, Brian De Palma. Uh, hang in there. We're going to meet uh, Luke Spiller, and he'll tell us his own glam rock fantasy. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter and beyond. The story of a sound, the man who created it. The girl who sang it, the monster who stole it, and the phantom who haunts the paradise. The ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries, dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody, that you weren't working just to survive. B. And you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. And the angels that defeated them. I want you to stop terrorizing the paradise and rewrite your cantata. And the Phantom of the Paradise. There really is a Phantom, 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 Phantom. All right. Welcome to a new show called Mark. Could be a lot of new sounds. A lot of new experiences. Just remember, keep a little mark in your heart and watch the same mark time, same mark channel. This is a new song. One, two, three, go!
when I um, when I lived in Los Angeles, something interesting happened. I thought when I moved out there that there would be more people working in film than in music, but that's actually not true anymore. I think there's more people in bands in L.A. than there are bands in L.A. I actually think I was in a band in L.A. and I don't play or sing publicly. Um, today's guest does both. Well, he sings the hell out of a microphone. Um, he has many of the things that I would like. Uh, one of them is a description of him once as the uh, musical love child of Freddie Mercury and Mick Jagger. I want to be called that. Um, it's funny because he's kind of having the last laugh on that description. He actually opened for Mick and the Stones, uh, 80,000 people. So who's really laughing? Um, he started out wearing a, a Technicolor dream coat at a very young age. Now he, he wears a dream coat that is uh, an homage to one of his heroes, Freddie Mercury. Uh, he has a tattoo, Sir Rock and Roll, on his heart, and he is truly an artist. And we welcome into Murmur uh, the front man for the struts, Mr. Luke Spiller. Luke, are you with us? Welcome to Murmur, man. Hello. Can you, can you hear me all right? I can, man. Can you hear me all right? I can. Yes, I can. What a relief. You know, I have, an, I have an idea. It's a free idea. I just played 20th Century Boy by Mark Bolin, you know, T-Rex. You may have heard of him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Why don't you guys write a song called 21st Century Boy? And I'll tell you what I mean. Like, we're, not, we're in the 21st century. He's your hero. I th- you can have that idea. Like, I think you guys should write that song. And I don't, I'm not asking for any money or anything. I just, I'd love to use it as my theme song for the show. Like, that's my idea for you. What do you think of that? That's cool. Um, um, how about like 21st century girl as well? You know, mix it up even more. And I, then I could, um, you know, I could cross dress in the video and it would be quite good. <laughs> well, aren't 80% of your clothes already? women's clothes i mean let's just go for yeah, n- yeah, 95 i i think i think if anyone uh anyone who's listening who's who's in music and kind of um you know comes from the same hymn sheet as me so to speak in terms of like stylistically um you learn very quickly that a lot of uh the men's collection doesn't really do it yeah. um unless it's really like high end fashion so you have to kind of like, you know, pick and choose a lot of a lot of different stuff from from um, you know both genres. What, what is? Um, well, it's funny. I always think about women's shoes. I know that's you know that's an f- odd statement, but I, I, I you know, our, women's shoes look beautiful and uncomfortable. I think men have always had it easy with shoes. Women seem to get the raw end of the stick. What what do you, what kind of shoes do you do? You wear boots? Do you wear flats? What kind of footwear do you tend to gravitate towards? Um, I wear a mixture uh, between. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not the. Um, I'm not the tallest guy in the world, so I don't have the, the largest feet. So I can again want. I, I, I use that to my advantage, and I wear like women's platforms. Um, you know, some sometimes you know, sort of like women's shoes. Then I also the only other men's shoe I really wear is, is a brand called Jeffrey West. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is based out of the UK, um, who, who I've sort of loved for many years now. Um, and, and that's about it, really. Yeah. Do you ever wear sneakers? Yes, I do. Yeah, just to kind of give my 
um, ankles and knees a rest. And then obviously, like, when I'm at the gym and stuff, yeah, I wear trainers. <laughs> well, your your performance style is, is becoming legion. I mean, you're an incredible, you're a mesmerizing performer. And... And I think Thank you, very much. you know we take that for granted as audiences the physical demands and the costume demands and I guess my question you know not to make this too mundane but when you're performing do all those thoughts go away I mean are you do you think about the the wear you know I, you know I'm always thinking of an actor an actor is, is you're semi conscious of the costume but at some point as a performer on stage or do you have to detach from what you're wearing almost mentally and kind of be free and let go. Um, what am I thinking sort of like the wear and tear like physically is is that the question almost the movement element you know I was thinking of uh, I was you know doing a little, oh yeah yeah you know I was thinking of someone no, no yeah I'm, yeah I'm very conscious of it and it and everything has to be um you know I try and get it the best I can and I, I guess the only way I can describe it is from the word go, you know, from the first song, it, it really is, you know, just push, 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 push. That's all it is. Mm. Um, and, and I don't really give, well, I don't really give myself any, any let up. That's, that's about it. Mm. You know, it's, it's all about, um, you know, pushing to the, to the absolute limit, you know, physically. Um, and you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Like, but you know, most I'm in better shape now than than I have been for quite a while. So it, it's working at the moment. What 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 would constitute it not working? You know, just to make the comparison again to acting. You know, and I know you you were you were doing some musical theater very young, and you thought of maybe even being a dancer at some point. But have you ever come off the stage and said, "Man, that." I just was off, or the, the performance wasn't what I wanted it to be, or, or. Oh yeah, every night, every <laughs> night. Are you every night? I'm. I. It's always self-critiquing, and you know, um, like I, I, you know, I'm surrounded with a great crew who, you know, I hope are sort of as honest as I think they are. Hmm. Um, so I, you know, whether it's with my voice or like physically. You know, I'm always trying to, you know, top the night before because you're only as good as your last show. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even musically as well. I mean, it's funny. We did 15,000 people last night and, you know, in L.A. in the Fonda. No, 1,500, sorry, not 15,000. <laughs> um, but even then, I, I, I still felt it wasn't like I was being mundane or sort of like melancholy or anything. I think it was a great night. But, yeah. you know, sort of at this particular time um, in our sort of like album cycle and whatnot, I was sort of like realistic enough to sort of realize and say to everyone, you know, we we are well overdue for not only like more material, but we're kind of, we've pushed our live show now and our, our songs and, and our gimmicks and our cues to, to its absolute limit. And um, I, I'm getting a, a sense of kind of um, boredom, hmm. you know, hmm. for myself. So, yeah, it's always self-evaluating. I think that's the only way you can ever get better, you know, as, and even with the songs as well, you know. You know, looking back a little bit at your early stages of development, uh, reading about you studying performers, 
thought that was particularly interesting. Like Michael Jack, we talked about Michael Jackson, even Bon Scott, Freddie Mercury, of course. Um, what was that process like? Were you literally mimicking the moves? Were you? Was it a physical thing? Was it a gesture thing? Was it a, a, a choreography thing? What were you taking from these incredible performers that you found useful? Um, at, well, it, it, you know, at, at a very young age. At a very young age. I yeah, thought. it was. It was like you know, you eight, nine years old, being completely hooked on um, on Michael Jackson and the way he moves and and the way he you know, used his body as, as somewhat of an instrument. And, um, you know, I was hypnotized by that. And it was, you know, many, 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 many hours studying, you know, in the mirror, looking at, um, you know, the videos. I mean, I broke a few of the videos just because I rewinded them <laughs> and paused them so many times, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember trying to figure out how to moonwalk, and I completely sort of, uh, well, I don't know, I completely ruined the section of VHS tape <laughs> that had the uh, the Motown performance. Oh, man, um, that that's the legendary, yeah, that's the legendary performance where he tosses the hat and just they go crazy. It's yeah, yeah, thing. and yeah. It, was, it was that I wanted to, you know, take and 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 yeah i remember it completely ruined that whole section just when the moon comes it just becomes like fuzz because <laughs> i've done it so many times and then you know i i guess i took that and i think i've carried that all my life you know the ability to sort of like look learn and like mimic um, and I've just kind of soaked in like a lot of characters yeah, yeah. over the years, you know, and, and studied as much as I could. Well, so I, was thinking, I was thinking of Charlie Chaplin used to study in a mirror. And, you know, now we tell actors and performers don't do that. But I think it's a genius way to get feedback, especially if you're young and you're doing this on your own and no one quite understands and, you know, those sorts of things. I think a mirror can actually be a great friend of to you um i don't I, I would completely disagree to anyone who says like a, a mirror is a bad thing yeah, I, I think yeah, it, yeah. because you, at the end of the day i you know you learn the hard way otherwise that like oh this movement that i'm doing here is you know you, you're thinking you're fully extending but you, in reality you're not you know and um I, I don't know. Whoever said that is an idiot. I agree. No, like, well, acting teachers are always a little wonky, but I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I, I, can, I, I can probably sense, like, you know, how you can become too focused on sort of, like, mimicking and, yeah. and, and, and bringing to life this, this exact image that you have in your head of whatever that it's meant, you're meant to be doing. But in terms of movement, um, I, I don't think there's any better way. It's either that or recording yourself, you know. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. We're talking to Luke Spiller. Did you ever, uh, was this pre-camcorder, did you ever record yourself at a young age? Did you ever ma yeah, ma make yeah, videos? Yeah, lots of times. Yeah. W was that yeah, lots of times. Was that helpful? Was that useful uh, or just kind of for uh, shits and giggles? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, before I used to do sort of like talent shows and whatnot, um, I would set up the camera and just, again, like, you know, the same way as I, I had a mirror. It's not like I, if I had a dance studio with like full length mirrors and, and whatnot, then I wouldn't have done it. But, um, yeah, I used to record myself and, and, and sort of like say, you know, 
where am I sort of like going wrong and where am I, you know, where can I get better? Um, and then, you know, it's something again that I want to kind of bring in more recently. I, I think there's so much time on uh, the group spent rehearsing like musically and, uh, <clears throat> you know, all the cues and stuff musically. But I think uh, now it's getting to the time where I actually start, I need to start, um, you know, working on this, this character that's on stage. And um, I feel like I'm, I'm exhausting all of his moves at the moment, you know, for the last year. And I, I need to actually, like, get into a space and actually sort of, like, choreograph some, some different ideas, you know? It's, it's an interesting, it's kind of a brave statement. You know, it's funny because the next little bridge here, uh, I was thinking about David Bowie, you know, who's, bear with me for a second, Bowie's given name was actually David Robert Jones. Uh, Gary Glitter was born Paul Francis Gad. Uh, Iggy Pop was born James Newell Osterberg Jr. So here's the the boring question, you know, about, have you ever thought, did you ever think in this journey to change your name? Did you ever think of a, a stage name? I, I, I did want to change my name, but I guess, um, uh, like when I was younger, sort of like, 14, 15, when I was in a band, I wanted to change it to Ace Phoenix. I love that. Um, but, like, that was, you know, it was more, um, slightly a bit more jokey, you know. Yeah, but, um, yeah. I, I, I personally think I've got a good name. And, I, I love uh, your name. I, and I wasn't be, trying to be critical. I'm just curious because of the persona of the persona, you know, and, the gla and glam rock, which I yeah. want to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to. I guess if there was anything... Um, you know the, the the kind of stir rock and roll thing is is sort of sticking, and um, I think that's interesting. You know, to have somewhat more, to have more slightly more of a title, you know, rather than a complete stage name is is uh, is quite cool. So um, <laughs> you know, that's kind of like the character. You know, stir rock and roll. Yeah, um, I, I love if that. There is any. Yeah, I. I... Maybe you could be knighted. Maybe we could arrange that. That'd be amazing if you were Maybe. a sir, <laughs> a knight of rock and roll. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about glam rock. It's funny. I teach a lot of film classes, and you know, pouring over glam rock. It's such an interesting genre where it came out of, you know, and it's still alive. Not all, you know, in you obviously, but even like people like Prince, and you know, even some of the '80s bands, you know, and even now Def Leppard, and they're. Talk about glam rock for you. When did glam glam rock become a kind of term? Was it really when you saw the Darkness video in two thousand and eight, or when did you first know of this kind of option of this kind of this kind of milieu of glam rock? When were you first introduced to it? Well, that that would have been it. You know, yeah. um, uh, when when I saw that when I saw the Darkness, really. You know, kind of, you have to understand, kind of, up to that point, um, you know, musically, I wouldn't say I, I had been sort of, like, sheltered, but I ha I was very sort of, like, ignorant to anything that really had gone before. Mm. Um, and it's not like my parents, you know, didn't enjoy that kind of music and whatnot. It's just that my my dad was so caught up in his own music and my mum sort of like, you know, still does sort of like, like her worship CDs and stuff. So 
You were you were raised you, rather was no, ra- rather Catholic, yeah? Is that is that what the history? No, Christian. Rather, oh, Christian. Okay. So was it gospel music? Um, were, were they? Was it? A, yeah. Yeah, it was gospel music. It was all gospel, it was all gospel music, yeah. you know, and um, uh, you know there, there wasn't any sort of like popular music around the house. So right. You know, I was I'd been exposed to what my parents were listening to, and then of course like what my older brother was into and what was going on in the charts like at that time. And, and it was very kind of like, you know, bleak. It was, you know, you had new metal and, um, you know, Eminem had like released his first album and then every middle-class white kid wanted to be a black rapper from Detroit <laughs> all of a sudden. And, um, I don't know if that's changed, you know, but yes. Was, <laughs> yes, yes, you're right. You're right on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and there was like this kind of giant movement. Uh, it was like an American invasion, really. And and then this whole pop punk thing happened with, you know, like Blink-182, right. you know, Sum 41. Sum 41, you know, I think actually had a great uh, debut album. Um, and even Green Day. Green was it, Day. Yeah, exactly. American Idiot and those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just didn't, I just didn't get it, you know. Yeah. And, and I was just like, I just thought this is like rubbish, you know, and um, and then all, all of a sudden, like the darkness came along, and I think it was like 2003 or four um, when uh, I can't remember exactly when, and uh, yeah, it just kind of like blew me away, like sonically, you know, even without seeing the, like the, the music video, I, I was just like, wow, you know, this this is great, this is kind of like risky this is more like me you know i I completely identified with it straight away and then of course like from that you know it's they they have sort of like a hundred comparisons in one you know so from that it was you know queen and led zeppelin and uh, acdc and uh you know later the stones and the beatles and whatnot and then that it was like you know this is it and i think as well it was it was a um for me, it was uh, it was an English thing as well. You know, mm. it was a British rock band who were shamelessly English. You know, it was yeah. as well. You have to understand, like the amount of young kids and young bands that were sort of like my age and who were sort of like from the UK, and, and there was this giant desire to look and sound and sing American. You know, so to have like a group come out, which was like like I said, shamelessly English and had great songs and screaming guitar solos, you know, just opened up the door for everything that had gone, you know, before them and influenced them. And I, and I think from then on for the next sort of like 12, 13 years, I, I sort of went on a, a self mission to learn and soak up as much as I could, you know, and I still am. It's It's a beautiful, notion and a beautiful description because when i think of where it came from even in the early 70s you know coming out of the mo- the mods and rockers of of the uk you know for people like bowie and brian ferry and mark bolan this even the sexual ambiguity to express that in the uk would have been sacrilege you know so i know we're talking about a 2003 with with the darkness as you're saying it kind of was was the light in the window for you but you know, there was it was more than a musical uh, breakthrough for a lot of the early mo- uh, glam rockers, and and what I love about it, and what yeah. I find interesting, is the television component. You know, Top of the Pops 
to have these incredible mod rock, uh, sorry, gl- glam rockers. And actually, I don't know if you've ever seen, but Mark Boland had his own TV show uh, called Mark. Yeah. yeah, it's genius. It's absolutely genius. Bowie's on it. Uh, Generation X is on it. Generation X was fronted by Billy Idol. So what I love about it is part of it, the early history was done through television, which I think you would never find now. You know, you would never find this kind. I mean, you guys have been on on TV, which I think is genius and brilliant that people are exposed in that way. But it's interesting how it's a vi- I guess my question is, is glam rock internal, external, both in equal measures? You know, Queen's performance in Live Aid, Freddie Mercury is kick ass now he's wearing something very simple there he's wearing you know a a t-shirt and his typical white pants and maybe a bandana so is is glam rock a kind of internal thing or is it an external thing or is it both of these things for you um i definitely think it's internal i think it's you know slightly musical um but I definitely, probably, yeah, I'd say it's more internal. It's it's more of a, um, it's more of an attitude thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of things can be described as, as glam. I, I think a lot of it is, um, you know, is provoking, and um, I think a lot of it is just. It's basically, I guess, it's just freedom. You know, that's that's what it is. You know, yeah. to me, it's yeah. it's a. Uh, it's a it's a blank canvas which in which you can sort of like do what you want, say what you want, and and you know wear what you want, and um, you know as long as you have a good time doing it, then, then why the hell not? You know, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's it's completely it's it's <coughs> it's not self conscious in any way, you know, which is what I think is quite refreshing refreshing about our group compared to a lot of things that are happening now uh, just a couple more thoughts and we'll let you get back to i know you guys are on the road now and it's funny i was thinking about la you're you know the tours the, and the, the new record is amazing and la seems to just eat you guys up you know in a good way i mean like you know they love your shows in la and your audiences in la are really sexy sophisticated and like full houses why do you think that is why do you, what do you think it is and and I'm, i think you know i don't want to give anything away but you're based in la and to a certain extent what what is it about la that responds to the genre so well do, do you find that or is that kind I, of overstatement? I have no idea I, I i really don't i think la is just a um you know it's just sort of like one of the two sort of like big markets in the US that, you know, if you're if you're an artist or a band, you know, you have to be on top of it, you know, and sort of really determines like how big you are. You yeah. know, if yeah. a band from the UK comes and, you know, they're doing sort of like two hundred, five you know, two thousand more people than you than in New York and LA, then they're probably bigger than you. And and, you know, I think it's just you know, the, the We've had great radio play there, and we've had a lot of support. And um, I, I'm not really sure. It's not like I'm, you know, gallivanting on the town every night, like you know, <laughs> sort of like handing out leaflets and telling everyone about how amazing my band is. So I don't know why that is. Well, you know, so, uh, I was thinking of Tennessee Williams. He used to go to his plays drunk and tell people not to go see them. 
So, you know, I hope you don't do right. that one day. Like, you know, show up incognito and tell people not to buy your record. It's one, I, don't know. I don't know about that. One, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have Jonas Ackerlin on the, on the show. And I know you've, you guys oh, really? work with Jonas. Yeah, uh, we're going to do... Because music videos, my, my film students ask me about music videos all the time. They still want to know, how do, how do I make music videos? I guess my first question, just to this last topic, I want to cover with you, music video. What is the function of music video? I mean, you have the, the one you did with Jonas is awesome. Could have been me. Um, and it did mm-hmm. really well. People on Vivo and YouTube loved it. It got a huge like amount of people watching it in a really incredibly short amount of time, which is awesome. And what's cool about that video is it says at the very beginning, a short film by Jonas Ackerlin. Uh, what, what do videos do for you all? Like, what is, How does it work in your presentation, in your art form? Are they important? Or are they simply things that, do, does the label want them? Or do you do them because you actually like doing them? Well, I like doing them. I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to, to, you know, to delve in deeper into that, you know, the concept of the video. And, um, you know, I have lots of ideas, but it's all fucking like money and time permitting. You know, that's the problem. I, I, I'd love to shoot like, you know, the first three or four singles off the next album in one go as one sort of like continuous like film. Yeah and then break them up, you know. But, like, I say that now, and, and people will agree with me, and the record people they will be like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And then, like, it will come, you know, they'll yeah. be like, they'll be two weeks out of the calendar to do it. And then, you know, three days before the shoot, they'll be, like, three hours to do the video. So yeah. <laughs> it, it's, um, it's kind of um, frustrating and... Uh, you know, I want to. I want to do more. But what? What is the purpose of a music video anyway these days? At the, at yeah. the end of the day, it, it doesn't do like anything for the band. If anything, it's absolutely pure self-indulgence at its best. Um, because you know, no one gives a, a shit about music videos these days. It, I mean, it's still an art form which is appreciated. And you know, when you see a great video, it's like, wow, this is you know fantastic to watch and is somewhat entertaining and whatnot. But you know. We live in a generation where it gets thrown away like three minutes later and, and sort of like, you know, they move on to the next thing. And, uh, you know, with the demise of music channels and, you know, music being more on television and stuff, I think it's uh, it, it can be used as a promotional tool. But I think these days, unless it's like super controversial, um, it doesn't seem to promote the band as as much as it should do you know in terms of like an art form in its truest form it's fair enough but you know what's really damn ironic about what you're saying that i don't disagree with it it inspired you you know and which is beautiful you know (laughs) I, i know i'm not i'm not saying it's the only thing i'm just saying that one of the most the coolest parts of your journey that you talk about a lot is seeing this darkness video and you're right and but not to sound like a total cliche sob but if it inspires one person to come out in some artistic way, maybe that is the function. Maybe it's, maybe it's a private function and not a public function. You know, as you say, if if promotional is the public function, maybe it's just for people who, who need to see it. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not trying to sound um, wonky here. I'm just saying it's still a no, short. And another on another level, and this is the last question I would ask you: Would you ever direct one? Because a lot of times it can help a young director 
earn their stripes a little bit and experiment. Would you ever direct one of your videos? I'd love to, you know, um, and, you know, I have lots of ideas and, you know, there's, um, there's, a, there's a large section in my brain dedicated specifically for music videos. You know, so. <laughs> yes, I love that. Did you see uh, that on an x-ray or you just like feel, that, is it like a tumor? <laughs> no, it's in my, it's in my uh, music video uh, hall, hallway, <laughs> you know, and, the, and all the ideas are hanging up in different pictures. Right, right. Um, in my mind palace. I love uh, that. Well, you know, I always, just one last word about glam rock. I, I'm in a, a slightly melancholy way to go out, but I think of some of the great glam rockers. Talk about Mark Bolin, who died very young, you know, uh, tragically, in a car crash. And someone that I know Morrissey loves a lot is Jabriath. I don't know if you would put Jabriath into the glam rock or even put Morrissey into the glam rock. But Jabriath passed away very young, too. This is an awful way because I think you're so brilliant, and I hate to a- answer end on this question. But do you ever think of that in this like liturgy? Like you guys, glam rock seems like a fast thing. Do, do you ever worry that mm-hmm. it's it's too fast the path you're on? I'm not talking about recreational or any chemicals. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you're on a fast tread. Like I think glam rock requires speed and almost like this. Prof- prophetic feel to it. Do you feel like you're part of that legacy, or do you feel this is a new time to be glamorous and be rocking? I'd I'd love to, you know, be be in that bracket. Um, but again, it's it's almost like I I find it so hard to kind of like step out of my situation and step out of my life and 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 truly be able to look out like externally and. And imagine what it would be like. You know, I, I guess you'd have to some, ask someone who's sort of like maybe fourteen or fifteen years old. I, I yeah. think that's the only way you can really get that true answer. It's like the music video. You know, yeah. I mean, I completely agree. You know, that that was one of the big things that inspired me, and so it truly is important. But then again, like. I had the music channels and it wasn't accessible, you know, right, via right. the internet, like whenever I wanted it. And I remember I would have to sort of like sit there for ages and wait for the specific video that I wanted to see all day, you know? Yeah. And yeah. there was, I think there was like an appreciation to it, you know? And, and I think not to stray too far away from like your question, but I think that that, that has, um, that definitely resonates in terms of, you know, our sort of like rock stars and entertainers as from today as well. You know, that they're, they're so accessible, you know, through the internet, social media and and whatnot. And the question is like, are they as precious, you know? Um but, you know, with that in mind I think two thousand and sixteen is, is a different um, new era, uh, exciting if you want it to be, and um, I'd love to be in that bracket. Uh, and and I guess the only thing I can physically do to kind of like help that is is you know be the best performer I can be, and and uh, come up with the best music I possibly can, and and you know be a part of the best band in the world, and that's that's all I can do. Are you worried about the Freddie Mercury movie they're making? Does that scare you that they're making a movie and how to live up to this 
this legend. No. Will you see? No, when will you see it? Will you see his movie? The movie of him. I don't know. I, I'm I'm still waiting for the call to to, to play him. To be honest. <laughs> I think Sasha Baron Cohen at some point, and then he dropped out of it. And maybe you should send a headshot, yeah. man. I'd see. I'd watch you play Freddie Mercury. That would be a treat. It's, it's already. It's, there's already talking about it, you know. But Cheers. I, w- I want to get paid more than they're offering. So we'll see what happens. Cheers, man. Hey, thank you so much. Best of luck with the tour. All health and happiness to you, and we'll, we'll definitely keep listening. Sweet. Thank you very much. Oh, and say hi to to Jonas when you speak to him from me. Will do. I'll give you him a specific hello from you. Thank you so much, Luca. Really appreciate that, man. Be thank well. you very much, mate, for having me. Cheers. And if one day I should become a singer with a Spanish bum who sings for women of great virtue, I'd sing to them with a guitar I borrowed from a coffee bar. Well, what you don't know doesn't hurt you. My name would be Antonio, and all my bridges I would burn. And when I gave them some, they'd know I'd expect something in return. I'd have to get drunk every night and talk about virility with some old grandmama who might be decked out like a Christmas tree. And though pink elephants I'd see, though I'd be drunk as I could be, still I would sing my song to me about the time they called me Shaggy. If I could be for only an hour, if I could be for an hour every day, if I could be for just one little hour, a cute, cute, in a stupid-ass way. And if I joined the social world, became procurer of young girls, and I would have my own bordellos. My record would be number one, and I'd sell records by the ton, all sung by many other fellows. My name would then be Handsome Jack, and I'd sell boats of opium, whiskey that came from Twickenham, off any queers and phony virgins. If I had banks on every finger, finger in every country, and all the countries ruled by me, I'd still know where I'd want to be. Locked up inside my opium den, surrounded by some Chinamen, I'd sing the song that I sang then about the time they called me Shaggy. If I could be for only an hour, if I could be for an hour every day, if I could be for just one little hour, a cute, cute, in a stupid-ass way. Now tell me, wouldn't it be nice that if one day in paradise I'd sing for all the ladies up there and they would sing along with me, we'd be so happy there to be because down below is really nowhere. And if my name were Juniper, then I would know where I was going and then I would become all-knowing. My beard's so very long and if I became deaf, dumb, and blind Because I pitied all mankind And broke my heart to make things right I'd know that every single night When my angelic work was through The angels and the devil too Would sing my childhood song to me About the time they called me Shaggy If I could be for only an hour If I could be for an hour every day If I could be for just one little hour a cute, cute, in a stupid-ass way.
know, it's interesting. They're um, talking about the Freddie Mercury movie, uh, and there may be um, a really um, there may there may there may sorry there may be uh, talking about the Freddie Mercury movie. There may be there may be um, an interesting movie in there somewhere about glam rock and and uh, I think Jabriath. Uh, we're talking about the glam rocker uh, Jabriath that Morrissey always spoke about. It's <laughs> this is a funny part about Jabriath when um, Your Arsenal came out. Uh, the more the uh, Morrissey album Your Arsenal. It was two thousand, not two thousand. Sorry, nineteen early nineties, ninety one, ninety two. Uh, for that tour, Morrissey wanted to book Jabriath as the opening act, but uh, Jabriath had died in the eighties. Um, part of the AIDS uh, sort of first wave of of known AIDS sort of celebrate celebrities uh, or artists in New York at the time. He died in the. Um, in the Chelsea Hotel, he died, I believe. Uh, Morsi didn't. Point is, Morsi didn't know it when he tried to book him. So I guess my point is, there's a lot of these sort of interesting creative uh, influencers that came out of this genre. Um, film has never done glam rock really well. Uh, we played a clip of Phantom of the Paradise, Brian De Palma film that has become a cult favorite. I, I don't think. Legend has it it's not one of De Palma's favorite films. Uh, I think it's a fascinating film. Uh, people forget that it's De Palma. Even De Palma fans forget that it's De Palma. Or not to forget purposely, they just don't connect it to him. The early, it's for, well, you know, and again, if you look at how music and film kind of cannibalize each other, it, while glam rock was dying, film was trying to, or at least when glam, glam rock was around, which it, the the first push of glam rock was the early 70s, and there were some films in the early 70s. There was a concert film of Ziggy Stardust. Uh, there, Gary Glitter had a concert film as well. I'm trying to think what else. Um, well, Rocky Horror, of course, 1974, and that you know went beyond glam rock. It goes beyond movies in a way. Um, the uh, Velvet Goldmine, which was a 1995, no, 90, I think a little later, 1998 film. Uh, Todd Haynes was a glam, was a, a mystery, sort of mystery, murder, not so much mystery, not so much murder, set in the world of glam rock in the UK. And uh, Hedvig and the Angry Inch, uh, John Cameron Mitchell, 2001, is another kind of pastiche homage to glam rock. I, what I liked about what Luke said, I thought it was interesting that he said uh, the attachment of young folks in uh, in the UK uh, to glam rock. I think that's right. I don't think Americans, there have been uh, derivatives of, of a form of glam rock, and many people think glam rock was usurped by goth, and that was, it seems to be a sort of uniquely American thing. Not the thing that it only stayed in America, but it came out of an ennui, a teenage ennui here in the States. Uh, but then again, there were so many English bands who you could call uh, goth rockers or goth musicians. The Cure was back on tour. Depeche Mode talked about a lot of those 80s bands who were UK, uh, the pop bands, the art pop bands. Uh, you know, so a lot of these artists cross over into to multiple 
stations, as great artists do. I just find these two, this topic of visualizing music and film has such a hate, love-hate relationship with it. I think capturing music, capturing musical performance on film is something that really has never been fully reconciled. I think certain films, whether it's concert films or musical films or films with a performance in them, it's a t- it's tough. It's a it's a tough act. <laughs> it's tough to uh, encapsulate that feeling because film, in a way, freezes charisma. It does not. It doesn't act as a steroid to performance it, it it acts as a kind of saran wrap where you can see it but it, it's flatter you know you could never replicate a feeling in a film F- films don't have feelings they're dispassionate then then again if you go to a concert and see prince or the struts or the strokes or the killers or any band with the in front of them you will feel it and it's a three-dimensional feeling although now, ironically, what's intruding on that feeling are camera phones. When you go to a concert, you see camera phones, and the camera phone is really blocking in a way. It's like beta blocking. You know, people are clapping, you know, there's less applause. Having a physical object in your phone is going to change your uh, mode of expression, your own personal mode of expression. So, this idea of what I would call three-dimensional performance going to a concert and film, which is thankfully not three-dimensional, it's flat, uh, is, is, uh, it's fickle. And, it, and it, it may not ever be able to work. And, it, and it, they just simply may not be able to get along. And I think that's cool. I think my favorite concert films are not about capturing stuff something that you you're not there to feel they're about adding a new mousetrap to a mousetrap so you have a sort of extravagant version of this of of the initial thing stop making sense uh jonathan demi is incredible the opening of stop making sense with david byrne is incredible um i think my favorite still is the last waltz uh, Marty Martin Scorsese filming um, the band's last concert in San Francisco. That to me is the height of capturing performance. And one of the cool and interesting things he did is, you know, if we talk about film being a flat medium, we talk about performance being a multi-dimensional medium. What he did, which most people don't do, and w- which what most films about performance don't do, is he filmed most of it in profile. Most of the camera positions are in the wings. He had multiple cameras, obviously, but the pri- the primary visual scheme, the the most screen time is dedicated to shots that are in profile. And what's interesting about that, because that's normally a really uninteresting way to film somebody, but in performance, it it, it creates an organic depth. You're automatically figuring out you're fixed to depth versus if I film let's say Prince in Purple Rain head on not that that's a bad film but if I film him head on everything gets collapsed the depth the foreground and the background have more of a democratic relationship to one another so I think what Scorsese did in Last Waltz filming it in profile led led us to this kind of organic 
uh, depth. So, you know, filming performance is incredibly difficult. And, and you know, now we add 3D to it, as Vim Benders did in um, Pina, which I, I, and I love Vim and I love that he did it. I have mixed feelings about that film. Uh, I you know there was a 3D concert film a U2 3D U2 3D or s- something to that effect and then Scorsese did that Shine a Light which was another experimental multiple camera crews multiple legendary cameramen and camera women see again what I liked about Shine a Light even though I didn't like the film uh, in totality I think Scorsese was saying hey let's let's figure out how we can film this in a way that is not um, that attempts to get at something, and and it's one of the reasons why I hate the term experimental filmmaker because every film is an experiment. So I think Shine a Light is a kind of cool experiment, uh, and then it goes back to music videos. One of the one of the playgrounds, the remaining playgrounds, the remaining sandbox advantages for music videos is. It's it's the pure no- notion that a concept may or may not work, and for a young filmmaker, for a student filmmaker, for a filmmaker who's afraid of, uh, who fears uh, subjective word poetry, oftentimes music allows them that wide berth where they can marry a concept to pre-existing words and sounds. So I think music videos. And as Luke said today, they're not a they're not going to be a medium that is a promotional medium because the TV delivery service just doesn't work that way anymore the way MTV worked when it was MTV. But they could still be a kind of I don't want to say training wheel, but they can be a sort of uh, like a um, like a sketchbook you carry with you on the subway or on a train or or on a plane or in the park. Uh, They can kind of be a great sketchbook for a young filmmaker. And I think for me as an educator who works with students, I love that. I think it's important that students have uh, sketchbooks uh, because you need to do your homework. (laughs) And what's great about film is you could do homework anytime. No one needs to assign you homework. You know, you're really assigning yourself. Uh, so it's it's still important. I want to thank um, Luke Spiller for being with us today, and I want to thank you for being with us today. MurmurRadio.com, ModernSchoolFilm.com. Email us, MurmurRadio at gmail.com, and uh, we'd love to hear from you, and we'll see you in the next couple of weeks on Murmur. <laughs>